How old should children be before they're shown explicit footage from animal agriculture? Is Denmark the new leader in the plant-based food revolution? Should animal abuse be classed as a domestic violence offence? And do Brits need to vote Labour next year to stop the badger cull? Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony. I'm Rich. I'm Kirsch. And I'm Tom. And this is episode six of Vegan Week. Welcome to episode six of Vegan Week. Thank you everybody for joining in and indeed for all the extra voices joining in more on that in a moment this show is sponsored by the fabulous people at fire and flow coffee a specialty coffee roastery based in the cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site very exciting fire and flow is a vegan founded company run by three friends shark callum and phil we're incredibly grateful for their backing of this episode and a bit later in the show we'll tell you a bit more about how you can get hold of their delicious coffee and tea we're joined as you have already heard on this episode by kirsch and tom as well as the man behind the sound desk our precocious producer and editor-in-chief it's richard hi great to be here joined by the guests uh, looking forward to a great great discussion Cool, cool. And yes, that discussion you might have seen in the title for this episode, we are going to be discussing whether children should be shown the reality of what goes on in animal agriculture. But that's in the second half of the show. This is the Vegan Week podcast. And as you will know, if you've already listened to our show, the first half is always dedicated to a rundown and commentary on our top 10 vegan news stories from the week. Okay, I've grouped together 10 different news stories that have been released in the last week. They all relate to veganism, animal rights or outcomes for animals. And Rich, Tom and Kirsch are going to pick their way through them. Just a quick note before we start. One news story that we're not going to discuss is one that broke just before we were starting to record. Um, So I'm just going to give a few details on it now. We're going to cover it in a lot more detail next week. So we found this in The Guardian. The headline is ex-officials at UN farming body say work on methane emissions was censored. And basically the long and short of it is that um, due to agriculture lobbies, the role of cattle in rising global temperatures has been underplayed by the FAO. So conspiracy theorists, it's going to be your episode next week. It's happening for real. Stuff's going down. But we won't cover that this week because we wanted to make sure we had proper time to to get all the detail on that. But tune in for next week's show to hear more about that. Big shock scandal. Goodness me. Anyway, Let's get to what we're talking about this week. We're going to start with four political stories. The first one is from Plant-Based News. Denmark unveils groundbreaking roadmap towards plant-based food. So this is the news that Denmark has become the first country in the world to publish a roadmap to make its food system more plant-based. They released a 40-page plan. I tried to look at the original, but it was all written in Danish, so I didn't get very far. So I'm just going to go through this plant-based news summary. The 40-page plan outlined the government's commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by boosting plant-based food production as well as making Danish 
dinners greener, it also sets out how the country can become a leader in plant-based food exports. The plan contains measures focused on every part of the supply chain from producer to consumer. A key part of it involves giving chefs training on how to prepare more plant-based meals. So it's really thorough, really groundbreaking stuff. Finally, it emphasizes the role of research and innovation in helping Danish food companies become leaders in the plant-based food production. Richard, are you um, are you planning your trip to Denmark as we speak? Uh, I can't hear you. I've just checked the flights there. <laughs> I think this is a great sto- great news, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they seem to be leading the way now. Uh, the way now, so it's all it's good to start with a positive story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Kush, can I come to you? I mean, does it does it frustrate you slightly that this is not the rhetoric coming? from our government, very, very much not putting forward plant-based roadmaps. Yeah, absolutely. I I guess one of, you you know, your next story is all about supporting farmers and therefore continuing having meat on the plate as if plants aren't grown by farmers. It's just excruciatingly annoying. I mean, I have been to Denmark, haven't been for a few years. And actually, I stopped going to Denmark, interestingly, because it was incredibly difficult to eat there. So this is a real shock for me. Sweden, its neighbour, has always been so much better yes it's fantastic news as long as it isn't somewhat like the co-op that said they were going to do a great deal make their plant-based food a lot cheaper and actually all that meant was the burgers and 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 all those things were cheaper and actual the, the actual plants the vegetables were still extremely expensive so i would like like yourself to see some of the details because if this is just about pushing a lot of junk food on people that's not ideal yeah, I guess the thing at the moment is that the bar's quite low, actually, to become a world leader in plant-based foods. You've not got to do particularly much, really, have you? But at least they're pushing things forward, I guess. Tom, did you want to say anything about this one? Um, I think it's just really refreshing, um, especially the, the, the role of research and innovation. I mean, that leaps out at me just simply because over the last, what, five years or so, we've been so afraid of listening to people who actually know what they're talking about. You know, what was it? People are... Uh, fed up of experts um yeah michael gove wasn't that yeah michael gove thanks for that mr gove Um, (laughs) but no just refreshing to see that research and actual things like that are actually at the heart of these policies and you know it 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 puts to shame the british government's um you know stance on many 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 things in regards to being plant-based in terms of being environmentally friendly all sorts yeah, and I think that this news story as well uh, points out that actually, as as well as doing the, the the right thing morally and ethically, as we would see it, you can also at this stage position yourself as a global leader here because it's still an emerging thing, kind of similar to we we heard a couple of weeks ago about Israel and how it's positioning itself as a world leader in uh, cultured meat. Actually, if, if you're going to put the investment in now, you can still just become a general leader in plant-based foods now. And actually, Denmark could be bringing in a lot of money to its economy, creating jobs by, by taking this step early. Well, I'd like to say I'd like the Spanish government also to take more action because, um, as Tom was saying, yeah, it puts the Spanish government a bit into shame, not taking more initiatives to promote plant-based food. So just that. But it's fine because they give people fines now for tying their dogs up outside. So that's, you know, know. that's that's progress isn't it? <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. So um, another political story now, and as Kirsch alluded to, one that uh, shows perhaps the, the contrast that we're experiencing in this country. This one's from Farming UK. Suffolk Council poised to defy vegan trend by pledging support for farmers. Now, this story came from a couple of days ago. Since the story was released, the vote has been made. So I'll kind of update us as we go. So Suffolk Council last week 
voted on a motion. This was on the 19th of October, which will see it always provide locally sourced meat and dairy options alongside plant-based options at its catered events. This is in a backlash to a lot of councils saying, no, we're just going to have plant-based food at our events, which we would obviously celebrate. But we're seeing more rural areas, uh, starting with Cornwall a few months ago and now Suffolk this week saying the the opposite. In addition to this measure, it's also going to commit the authority to urge Suffolk residents to shop locally where possible, taking advantage of homegrown meat, dairy and plant-based options. The motion also aims to boost the local economy and reduce food miles to our tables, quote unquote. More on that in a second. I think we might have something to say. Mo Metcalf Fisher, Director of External Affairs for the Countryside Alliance, has said, we have seen a number of local councils turn their backs on farmers in recent years with puerile motions that ban meat and dairy consumption. Rural communities have had enough and are fighting back. If we were to lose livestock farming, as is undoubtedly the aim of those wanting to impose plant-based eating, our countryside would turn into a barren wasteland. Go ahead, Kirsch. No, just the barren wasteland, really. I mean, actually, I live in a little town called Llanroost, and Llanroost floods every year because we have sheep on our mountains, and we have a barren wasteland because of the sheep, basically. You know, it's much more barren. So, yes, it's absolutely just annoying. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's and, and in fact using the word puerile to describe a plant-based eating actually I think perhaps might summarize the the very basic understanding of of what what a vegan might want uh, the countryside to turn into it's 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 not it's not turning things into a barren wasteland actually what was there before the animal farms but anyway let, let's let's carry on that Tom Hunt the Conservative MP for Ipswich in Suffolk added why rely on plant-based alternatives imported from across the globe when you can eat sustainable local produce be it meat dairy or vegetables this is a practical way of cutting emissions while supporting local growers and farmers those who would oppose the motion are very much open to the accusation of being anti farming and freedom of choice and as you might have picked up this motion has been passed so this is going to be Suffolk Council's stance. The whole notion of food miles just really frustrates me it's such a false equivalency we look to oh your, your food has traveled x y and z amount of miles because it, it relies on the incorrect notion that transport is the main contributor to pollution from food it's just it's not it's a drop in the ocean and yeah we link that back to what we just talked about Denmark with saying research is going to be at the forefront of these policies. Simple research would have told you that food miles is is not irrelevant, but it's a small mitigating factor here. Mm-hmm. What you eat is far more important than where the food has come from. An avocado flown halfway around the world is still more environmentally friendly than meat. That's a scientific fact. Um, and it frustrates me that people say these things and they very rarely get challenged on them. Yeah, absolutely. Rich, can I ask, I mean, the, these changes where we've seen councils pushing back against the, a lot of the plant-based eating that a lot of councils are are starting to promote, they've happened in Cornwall, very rural area, Suffolk, quite a rural area too. D- does that kind of mitigate the concern that, that we should have for this becoming, becoming like a, a, a snowball effect? What I think we need to do is to change the way we frame things and the assumptions because what it seems to me is like we're trying to protect jobs while what we should doing is try to protect workers and that means just helping them transition to a more sustainable way of life so yeah it's just that we can say can you imagine if we still used carriages i think i've said that in the past no we we can't (laughs) 
what we need to do is help them transition. And I can understand why the councils are making those decisions, but we are missing the point. What we need to do is help workers transition to a more sustainable way of life. Yeah, just on that, I think I probably go off on a on a you go off on one now, but surely growing vegetables requires a damn sight more workers than farming sheep. You know, here you just have one person farming sheep on his little quad bike and he'll take in an entire you know huge area so yeah I'd have to challenge that crazy idea that it's better for jobs actually to be honest you know if that's what they're saying it's just it's just not the case is it they got rid of the workers off the farms some time ago yeah and I I, I think people's people are often driven by fear in these things aren't they without necessarily looking into well what actually would be the next step if we weren't if we weren't um, using animals in agriculture, what would be the next step? And actually, perhaps there doesn't need to be quite as much fear. Just say the transition in terms of w- what kind of work doesn't need to involve the same type of jobs or, or the same sector. I think there's a great opportunity here to bring other things that probably would help the economy. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be agriculture or it has to be raising animals. So I think... We should look at the big picture and just say what's more sustainable and councils, therefore, should promote the diversity in what can help the economy from a sustainable point of view. Yeah, the the, the freedom of choice uh, argument that was made by, uh, let's see, which one was it? It was the, uh, the Conservative MP for Ipswich in Suffolk was saying that these people want plant-based food. It's, it's anti-freedom of choice. The fact is that we're talking about freedom of choice for humans. We're not talking about freedom of choice for animals. And it's humans who are privileged enough to, not to currently be affected by climate change. There are, there are humans who are having their lives changed dramatically because of climate change, because of animal agriculture, who we are imposing this choice upon. Uh, by continuing to promote animal agriculture in this way. And I think it's a very privileged thing to say that, oh, it's our choice to keep eating meat, both for animals and and sufferers of climate change. Okay, let's move on. Another one from Farming UK, I'm afraid, but potentially a more positive outcome from a vegan perspective. Labour promises to end badger cull in England. So Labour has promised this week to end the badger cull in England if it were to gain power in the next general election. That is according to reports, so it's not 100% confirmed, but strong hints. Daniel Zeichner, hopefully I've said that right, the shadow farming minister, confirmed to The Guardian that Labour would strive on making England free of bovine TB by 2038. That's a very long time, isn't it? He said his party would shun the badger cull and combine the disease, uh, combine and combat the disease using other methods, including vaccines and biosecurity measures. Mr. Zeichner said, I've spent a lot of time looking at this. The 2018 Godfrey Review, the last piece of work done by the government, found that badger culling is not the answer. We're going to make England bovine TB free by 2038, but with a range of measures that do not include culling. The position is in stark contrast to DEFRA Secretary Therese Coffey, uh, who we heard from a couple of weeks ago, not my favourite person in the world, who recently said that the Conservatives would keep culling as it is the best way. Look, I'm not going to tell anyone who they should and shouldn't vote for. It's a very optimistic story, but Labour have promised a lot of things under the current leader and they've reneged on every single one of them. So I would be a bit more cautious about being too optimistic over this story, but I hope it is true. Um, 
because anything is better than uh, the the Tories' view of things of keep culling because killing is the best way forward. <laughs> I, would say, uh, the but, same. I would say I'm really a sceptic when it comes to these promises. So I don't know. I wouldn't vote just for that. Yeah, I, I think there's always an argument, and I, I mentioned this last week with a um, a legal case that hadn't been um, fought yet. But sometimes it's worth sharing a story before there's a conclusion to it, because it does at least spread the fact that people are talking about it, um, and that kind of validates it. So whether or not Labour would keep to this promise, the fact that they think it's worth mentioning shows that it's something that's worth contesting and worth discussing. So in that regard, it's perhaps worth them. Um, sharing but like you say tom they need to get in power and need to stick to their promise before any outcome for animal is improved there from the guardian our next story victoria to consider making animal cruelty a domestic violence offense this is not just someone called victoria this is the state of victoria in australia um, and just uh, so listeners are aware for a content warning this discussion will contain references to domestic violence and emotional abuse we'll be talking about it for a couple of minutes so the government of the state of victoria in australia have said that they would support a motion put forward in the upper house on wednesday by the animal justice party mp Georgie Purcell to investigate changing the Family Violence Protection Act to include an animal cruelty offence. So basically they're looking at the link between violence towards animals and humans and a lot of research is pointing to the fact that they are linked and that one can predicate the other. This change would bring Victoria into line with New South Wales which in 2020 made harming or threatening animals a form of intimidation under family violence legislation. So just to give a bit of background into this and research that has been done, several reviews have found perpetrators of family violence will use overt threats and actual harm to animals as a mechanism to attain and maintain control of their family. In one study from Victoria, 53% of family violence survivors said that their partners had, had hurt or killed one of their pets, which is obviously shocking. In its submission to the Victoria government's Royal Commission into Family Violence, the RSPCA said in many cases animals were abused as a method of controlling partners while in the home, or they might be starved, abused or neglected when the victim fled. According to the Animal Welfare Agency, one in three women would delay leaving situations of family violence due to concerns about leaving their beloved pets behind, exacerbated by the fact that most refuges or crisis accommodation options will not house companion animals at all. So it makes it a very, very difficult choice to make. I think it's normal to see a correlation between violence in animals and humans altogether, because I guess violence manifests against everything. So that's not a surprise. I'd also like to see what's the list of animals included here. I know we're talking about domestic animals, but uh, when I see this, it always hurts to think that we just choose some of them and we forget about all the factory farmed animals, all the pigs, even kangaroos in, in Australia. I mean, it doesn't matter the species. It's just equality for all the animals. So despite the fact that I guess it is a, a move on the right direction, in the right direction, it, it saddens me that it's never enough, you know? Well, I have to say, I've got a lot of experience of domestic abuse from my, both myself and my family. And in actual fact, there's very little help for women anyway. And if you look back into the 1990s, there was even less. And abuse of the woman was sort of enshrined in law. Mm. So I don't think it's enough 
to just give animals the same protection as women. Both women and men, uh, sorry, and animals need protection. It should just be a given, shouldn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And actually, I, reading this feels to me like it's like, like the coercion piece that we have in domestic abuse now. So if somebody is abusing an animal as part of coercion against that partner, then that is wrong. Now, it, 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 I, I, I accept that. But abuse of an animal should be the same as domestic abuse mm. and domestic abuse. Any abuse that happens in a home is wrong, basically, regardless of who that is against. And I think that's what we should be, because it feels that this is just very much just pigeonholing a certain type of abuse of an animal. You know, so if that's a happy couple abusing that dog, feels like that's probably fine. Mm. Do, do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. it's certainly food for thought on a, on a, on an area that doesn't get doesn't get anywhere near enough airtime con- con- considering the, of airtime, the police don't help so they're not yeah. going to help with a, a dog they're not going to help when a when a when a, a human gets hurt i mean they just don't unfortunately yeah yeah, yeah it's it's um it's it's staggeringly staggeringly uh, falling short isn't it really yeah. it is i mean it, it's just one of those things that the animal rights movement needs to include everything every animal homeless animals who happen to be humans you know and and we're not just talking about these tiny wee little because unless we all get a proper philosophy about how we treat one another then we're not really going to have major changes whilst we categorize farm animals domestic animals women homeless people you know absolutely kirsh thank you for thank you for sharing that I, i found that really really helpful to hear that Let's move on to a couple of studies now. This first one is from the sexy titled American Journal of Kidney Diseases. I know you're all avid avid readers of that one. Uh, and the headline is Association of Plant Protein Intake with Risk of Incident Chronic Kidney Disease. I'm not sure that headline even makes sense. Anyway, this is a study where they've used a big biobank of data. So they've got over 100,000 participants. It's a big, big database. And the authors of this study have basically found that the participants with a higher plant protein intake had a lower risk of developing chronic kidney disease. So sounds good from a from a vegan perspective. Um, it was quite a longitudinal study. It, it looked at participants over 10 years. Um, so it kind of increases the, the validity of it. And the study also mentioned, which I thought was quite good, the fact that plant-based diets confer various health benefits, including lowering the risk of cardiovascular disease and certain cancers. So this sounds like a positive news story from a vegan perspective. But it's talking about chronic kidney disease, which obviously affects a lot of people, but I don't think it's the highest on a lot of people's radar. Would you share this story or would it seem a bit obsolete? What are you thinking? So it's just uh, another study that we as vegans can use to back up what we already know. We know that the plant-based lifestyle, um, it it, it can change your health for the better. It can reduce risks um, of chronic diseases from heart disease to stroke to types of cancer. And now we can add kidney disease uh, to that long list as well. So yeah, it might not be the the most headline grabbing title, but it's certainly another study that we can say, hey, look, our diet, our lifestyle is is not only great for the animals, but it's great for our health as well. 
Yeah, I totally back up what Tom said. I mean, it's yet another confirmation, another study that proves that the best diet is a whole food plant-based diet and that ticks all the boxes i think i know we're talking only about health here but at some point we also need to consider what's best for the planet and what's best for the animals so this you know at the end of the day it ticks all the boxes i've just had a quick google and 10 percent of the world's population has chronic kidney disease so it is a big news story actually isn't it shows what i know (laughs) so yes it's very positive yeah um, for lots of people yeah, absolutely. Well, no, that's thank you for putting me right there in my privileged not suffering from chronic kidney disease position. Yeah, like absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's very important for those people at effect. And that's that's quite a few people, isn't it? Cool. OK, well, if we're happy to let's let's move on to another study. Got to say this one is less positive from a vegan perspective and certainly an interesting one. So this is from Nutrients Journal. Balancing nutritional needs in children. Study highlights risks in plant based and meat-based diets. So this is a a systematic review published in the Nutrients Journal and it's revealed that children adhering to plant-based diets and those consuming meat-based diets face the potential risk of inadequate nutrient take. So basically everyone's children are at risk. Hooray! So let's, let's break down Um, the different things because there were some things that had uh, positives for vegans some less so and some that were a bit more balanced so the authors noticed that the studies comparing plant-based and animal-based diets showed no marked difference in energy intake from both diets so i I take that to mean sort of calorie intake um were, were about the same in both however Further analysis revealed that children consuming plant-based diets fell short of meeting protein intake recommendations. So the where do you get your protein in this study seems to be borne out, which makes me cringe. For all of the diet groups, mean protein intake was within the recommended threshold. So unfortunately, in, from this story, the vegan children are not getting enough protein. Oh my goodness, you couldn't write it, could you? Uh, moving on, children fed a plant-based diet were at risk of getting inadequate fiber and their saturated fat and their polyunsaturated fat wasn't wasn't good either. However, their intakes were more favorable or less bad than those of meat-eating children. So basically, the vegan children weren't as bad as the meat-eating children for fiber-saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat. Very quickly for the last bits now, average intakes of vitamin D and calcium were low in all diet groups and also iodine deficiency in all diet groups. Children fed meat-based diets were likely at risk of inadequate folate and vitamin E. Children consuming plant-based diets were at a higher risk of deficiency of vitamin B12, zinc and iron. Gosh, who wants to go first on this? It sounds like all children are not eating correctly. Richard? I'd like to read all the study because it just says a vegan or a plant-based diet. You know, I could be eating crisps and Oreos all day. That would classify as a vegan diet. So especially in the Western world, regardless of what you eat, you're probably eating not the right food, which is whole food, you know, whole food, plant-based food. So it, I think we need to read a bit more into the study. We do, but those who want to quickly jump on the vegan diet as a fad that's unhealthy are not going to do that, are they? They're going to say, look, told you so, told you so. As a, as a parent of a vegan, um, a vegan child, one of the first things we always got asked when, when he was born was, are you going to raise him vegan? And then when the response was, well, yes, of course, there's a lot of um, a lot of people tutting and inside their heads going, oh, that child's going to be uh, malnourished and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I can confirm that my two year old is not malnourished. 
um, he's doing very well. It doesn't tell us anything we don't already know. As you know, we've just said, um, if you if you sit there eating Oreos uh, and you know vegan junk food, of course you're not going to have a great diet. It's the same as taking your kids to McDonald's every day and giving them chi- chicken nuggets and chips. That's not a good diet for children to have. As a teacher, I see what comes into children's lunchboxes. I see what they get for school dinners. And I'm not generally surprised um, at, you know, some of those findings, because generally speaking, children are quite fussy eaters um, and they don't normally like vegetables as much. Um, So it's not necessarily surprising. And I suppose I just don't want it to become another stick for vegan and vegan parents to be beaten with, because there's a lot of factors that are not in that study that I suspect are quite important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly wasn't surprised to see that basically no one was getting enough fibre. Um, because like you say, it's very difficult, I, I would have thought to persuade a lot of children, young children, to eat lots of fibre, though there are there are lots of people that do manage to, to do that. Kirsch, can I ask, were you surprised to see that calcium deficiency was across the board? I, I would have thought the prevalence of everyone eating and drinking lots of dairy would have, <laughs> would have meant that everyone would be getting enough calcium, I, apart I from the vegans. Thought, I'm, a, I'm a grandmother and I've you know got two grown-up daughters who are brought up from conception right the way through as vegans and I would have thought the amount of hummus they ate there should be no problem with them getting calcium so I'm surprised at your kids not getting calcium (laughs) but but in actual fact you know in the olden days when I was bringing up my daughters there was a kind of conspiracy theory that that vegans didn't need b12 and that was detrimental so actually I think these are these these studies are useful because it allows everybody to see where there might be shortfalls in a diet and where they can there do something about it. You know, ultimately, we want to know, like iodine could potentially be a problem for the vegan diet. That's why the veg uh, one, you know, the, the supplements, they have iodine in it. And only by having these um, reports coming out can we actually see that we need to make sure we've got enough iodine We've got enough B12 as a very, you know, as a minimum. Yeah, and I, because I read some studies, I started eating uh, seaweed just to get my iodine because I found it was very high in iodine, maybe too high for me. But anyway, so I totally agree that these are useful to get some insight. Let's move away from some studies now and to some issues affecting animals right now. Uh, This one is from the Animal Reader following up on a story we covered a couple of weeks ago. Amazon River at lowest level in over a century killing fish and dolphins. And as per our story a couple of weeks ago, this story does contain some upsetting details. The Amazon River fell to its lowest level in over a century on Monday at the heart of the Brazilian rainforest as a record drought damages the jungle ecosystem. High water temperatures are suspected of killing fish and over 120 endangered river dolphins. The port of Manaus at the intersection of the Rio Negro and the Amazon River recorded 13.6 metres of water on Monday compared to 17.6 a year ago. So it's four metres lower than a year ago. The Amazon region is currently under pressure from the El Nino weather pattern with the volume of rainfall in the northern Amazon below the historical average. My thought here, I don't know if anyone else's thoughts, I've not seen this reported anywhere other than this very niche Animal Reader. It's a brilliant website, the Animal Reader, I'd recommend it, but I've not seen it reported anywhere and I kind of I kind of don't know why. No, I haven't seen this either and it's actually um, really, really sad that this hasn't been more widely 
put out there. I mean, we know the damage that is happening to to the world's ecosystems at the moment. We know that animal agriculture plays a huge part in that. And it's like we've already said in this show, it's um, animals that are suffering because of that and they don't have that choice. And it's just, it's it's very depressing and I'd like to see a lot more coverage uh, of this. And hopefully this, you know, this will get people talking, hearing it on this wonderful podcast. Maybe, you know, people can start telling their friends, posting all over social media. Let's get the word out there because this is a, this is a big deal. You know, the Amazon rainforest is a, is a huge, a hugely important ecosystem for the planet. Um, and it's just another horrible occurrence in, in changing weather patterns that is having a, such a detrimental effect to the planet and to animals. Well, I think climate change, often people struggle to relate to it because they can't see it happening. Well, this is happening now. It's happening in a part of the world, like you say, Tom, that like a, a lot of people know about. It's got cute animals dying you know sorry to make light of it i'm not making light of it but it's you know surely if we can't relate to this what what can we relate to it it it, it ought to ought to be able to um resonate with people you'd hope but we've got a massive storm haven't we in scotland just this weekend i think have people died you know mm. the, the weather occurrences are happening constantly we've got the arctic suffering extremely badly yes this ought to be reported do I think people will take notice? No, I don't think they will. They've just bombarded with this information, and I don't, I don't think, yeah, I don't think they care or believe it even. So no, and and there's certainly a, a phenomenon of being saturated with these things, isn't there? Sometimes, you know. So that's that's perhaps. I don't know if is. this is also happening to you, but I'm finding it increasingly difficult to talk about climate change in a normal way, like. I see around me more people that either deny or play it down or, I don't know, you get a cold day and they say, well, you see, it's cold. It's, it's nothing to worry about. And I find it increasingly difficult to have a rational conversation with people about it sometimes. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Right. Let's let's move on. Now, this is another upsetting story. However, it has got a lot of coverage on behalf of animals so i'm kind of seeing this as a positive this is from the animal justice project who i'd, I'd recommend you look at their website because again i think it's a really cracking one that advocates really nicely on behalf of animals from what i've seen anyway uh, rspca assured chicken catching exposing a rotten industry so yeah this story has been reported on the mail online as well as in print in the daily mail the mirror and the daily express so an undercover investigator from the animal justice project embedded themselves with chicken processing specialists so basically people that kill chickens ad harvey is the name of the company whilst ad harvey this company visited farms to carry out depopulation i i.e. killing chickens. So at around 18 months, the egg production of laying hens drops and they're considered spent, that they're not, not worth anything to the industry anymore. So they need to be caught and they need to be killed by, by the industry. Now, to catch free-range hens, bearing in mind this is the, the top welfare level as, as graded by the RSPCA, by supermarkets and everything, catchers were seen forcing hens down off the tiers in their cage-free system by any means necessary. This included pushing, kicking, throwing, hitting, and being pushed along by crates and scared with plastic bags. Uh, Professor Andrew Knight, who you might have remembered from the last couple 
of podcasts uh, was asked for comment having been shown this and he basically completely denounced these practices said no this is absolutely not what is allowed um, and this is going to be causing a lot of suffering as is evident to anyone watching it to be honest with you one of the farms at the center of the investigation was kettleby farm in leicestershire run by sunrise eggs um, and this rspca assured free-range farm prides itself on being high welfare quote-unquote and supplies eggs to morrison's co-op and asda supermarket i mean like i said at the start my feeling is that it's great that this is being covered and and shared would you uh, would you agree with that rich well what what i think it yeah it's good that it's shared but that that's why in my opinion and myself i don't believe in welfareism that much i'm more like a, an abolitionist because no matter how well you try to do something if it's wrong you can't do something wrong the right way so yeah, it's not the surprise, and that's why I don't believe in welfare. It, it was appalling, I have to say. Reading reading the coverage on the Animal Justice Project's website, they detailed what is allowed and 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 seen as okay by the government and the RSPCA, and that sort of the criticisms they were having was, oh, uh, the catchers were holding five chickens in one hand by one leg, whereas actually you're allowed to carry three chickens in one hand with two legs it's it's absolutely disgusting what would happen if these were pet would the rspca act then because we're talking about free range which is the highest standard for farm animals or for you know uh, animals to be consumed let's say but if that was a dog a cat or a pet the situation would be very different you'd be facing fines you'd be totally you know Uh, told off so it's sad it just goes to show the absolute hypocrisy of you know the labels that we we give out to eggs to meat to 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 dairy by saying oh it's free range it's a red tractor it's rspca approved it's just to make people feel better at the end of the day about their choice to go out and buy an animal product it's just another failing of the rspca and you've hit it the nail on the head rich you know if that was a dog or a cat a domesticated animal people would be up in arms but because it's quote unquote just chickens you know where's where's the outrage where's the anger apart from us (laughs) apart from the four of us um i mean that I'm not going to say I'm defending the RSPCA. I'm just giving more information. Since they were made aware of this investigation footage, they have made the decision to suspend A.D. Harvey pending their own investigations. I mean, the Animal Justice Project have said this happens every time. They they kind of give them a slap on the wrist and then, then let them carry on. Yes, it's appalling. It's great that this is being shared. But, you know, even if they were following the rules, the rules are appalling, aren't they? Yeah. So yeah my my feeling is that there's there's always going to be someone reading the daily mail the mirror the daily express who's not seen this sort of thing before so the fact that people are continually willing to go undercover to document things to release the press that the the press release and get it published um you you never know who's going to come across this information for the first time and that might plant a seed or it might be the the final straw that that leads them to make more compassionate choices. We, we certainly hope so. Um, let's move on. On to news of an ongoing legal battle now. This is from ABC News. Supreme Court leaves in place court victory for Peter over North Carolina ag gag law. Okay, I'm going to try and give a real basic explanation now. I think it's good news for veganism. Okay, that's 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 my headline. 
Now I'm going to go into a bit more detail. Try and stick with me. So the US Supreme Court has rejected North Carolina's appeal in a dispute with animal rights groups over a law aimed at preventing undercover employees at farms and other workplaces from taking documents or recording video. So the justices left in place a legal victory for people for the ethical treatment of animals, Peter, in its challenge to the state law, which was enacted back in 2015. So Peter, back in 2015, had said they wanted to do an undercover investigation at testing labs at the University of North Carolina, but they were afraid of doing so because of the Property Protection Act. And back in 2015, they were told, no, it's fine, you can do that because you're conducting news gathering activities. So Peter said, this this Property Protection Act won't apply to you because your undercover investigation is conducting news gathering activities. So that's fine. However, recently, the last few weeks, uh, North Carolina tried to appeal this and say, no, 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 this shouldn't be the case. Peter shouldn't be allowed to do it. But the appeal was rejected. So like I say, good news, I think, from a vegan perspective. Here is what the lawyer um, representing Peter said. People have a right to know about illegal and unethical conduct. Exposing unsafe or inhumane inhumane practices and working conditions is essential to holding powerful bad actors accountable for the harm they cause. That's what they said. The lawyer attempting to get the appeal, called Joe Parker, um, who lost the appeal, thankfully, said, Farmers and other business owners should consider themselves activist targets and take caution when hiring new employees. So nothing like sour grapes is there. I think that's a good news. Am I just being ridiculously positive? Tom, you're nodding your head. I'm going to come to you first. Yeah, of course it's good news because it helps, as as you know, Peter says, it helps hold people accountable. Um, and that's what this is all about. It's about ensuring that practices in that field are, you know, aren't as horrible and terrible as they, you know, they are, which is, I know, uh, seems like an oxymoron. Um, I do find the uh, the comments made by that Joe Parker fellow quite amusing. It's like saying, instead of making things better, you know, just be, be, be wary about who you hire. Don't, don't change things for the better. Don't do better things. Don't act more ethically. Just don't get caught. Yeah, don't hire a snitch. That's basically what he's saying, isn't it? Yeah. Was was anyone surprised by the fact that that this appeal was unsuccessful? Because I, I've certainly heard a lot of news about AGGAG and the fact that, that there seems to be a lot of basically rules saying you're not allowed to expose what happens in animal agriculture in America. I was kind of surprised to see this. Yeah, I guess a little bit surprised, but you know, it's a it's a victory. Um so let's let let's take it. We'll take it. Much like last week, we're going to end with news of a book release. This is from the University of Leicester. New book imagines society based on animal rights. So, what would a society based on animal rights look like? Well, this new book by University of Leicester politics expert explores how our laws and institutions might change if non-human animals had the same rights as humans. So the book is called What Are Animal Rights For? It's by Dr. Steve Cook, Associate Professor of Political Theory at the University of Leicester, uh, and it explains the nature, function, purpose and limitations of animal rights, showing why they're needed and what society would look like if they were implemented. Um, It's part of a a series from the Bristol University Press called What Is It For? And basically, you can, if you're anywhere near Bristol in the middle of November, 15th of November, um, you can go to a 
a bookshop called Book House, book and then H-A-U-S. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, And you can be there for the official launch. How exciting. The book is aimed at both members of the public and students and scholars with an interest in animal ethics. And the author, Dr. Steve Cook, from the university's School of History, Politics and International Relations said, whilst the focus is on rights, I also devote space to explaining other ethical frameworks. This includes going beyond the idea of a just society for humans and animals to also consider what a good society would look like from our personal relationships with our companion animals to the political institutions we would need to develop. I'd like to finish our new section with a quick vote amongst the four of us. Do you want to read this book or do you want to read the book that we mentioned last week from Earthing Ed, How to Argue with a Meat Eater and Win? Anyone want to stick their neck out first? Both. I don't want to I choose. Like Rich wants to read both. Okay, that's the that's the diplomatic answer. Tom, um, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sure this book is very interesting, but I like Earthling Ed. I've got a lot of time for Ed. I've met him. He's a genuinely nice chap, um, and I do want to give his book a read because I'm sure it will help me with lots of discussions with family in the future. Okay, Kirsch. I'd be happy to read this book. Um, I'm very interested in how appalling humans are to humans. You know? <laughs> um, so I hope he covers that as well, because that's needed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as well as how we look after animals and the different tiers of of animals that we have as well. Everything's tiered with humans. It's very strange. So hopefully he looks at that. I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I I will um surprisingly I will I will vote for this one too because it just it just really grabbed me. Although like like you say Tom Earthling Ed's book sounds really interesting too, but um yeah, that sounded like a a really interesting examination of what society could look like if we were more just and equitable. So um like I say that's coming out on the 15th of November and we'll put a link in the show notes. Well, thanks everyone. And a question to the enough of the falafel community out there listening now. What are your thoughts on this week's news? Anything we've missed? Anything we've got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions. Is promising the end of the badger call enough to persuade you to vote Labour if you're a UK listener? And how many of you now want to move to Denmark? Indeed. We'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think would catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. We'd love if you gave us a follow. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Float Coffee Roasters. I've used their stuff for many, many years um, and you can too by visiting them in person or their fantastic website, fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. They're a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Fire and Flow is a vegan founded company run by three friends, Shark, Callum and Phil. They specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. They love working with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering with free barista training and full tech support included if you take them on as your wholesale supplier of coffee. They're also passionate about working with skilled and ethical minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans and Fire and Flows then roast everything to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester, 
which you can visit if you're near the area or maybe you just want to plan a holiday rose, uh, revolving around a Sirencester coffee roastery. Who knows? You can book into one of their barista courses or a roastery tour via their website, which is fireandflowcoffee.co.uk or check out the full vegan coffee shop that they have on site. It's open seven days a week from nine till three. So there's no excuse. And while you're waiting, just to get the, the taste buds uh, salivating, if that in, is indeed a phrase, give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest. They are at Fire and Flow Coffee. Okay, so people don't mind listening to details about their coffee and where it comes from, but it's a different matter when it comes to animal products. People often are reluctant to watch or to share what happens to animals, sometimes even put behind sensitivity warnings online. Yeah, that absolutely does my head in when there's a sensitivity warning and so something's not being shown. It kind of, ah, I get very angry. Anyway, it gets even more emotive, of course, when children are involved. We've, we've heard previously in the podcast about adverts being banned because they show even fictional horrid things happening to animals um, at the argument being... This could be seen by children. Children could see this and get upset. So it's not allowed to be shown, let alone children seeing the real thing. Now, during a scrolling session on Facebook uh, earlier this week, I happened upon a discussion topic with a huge number of comments. So I looked at it and basically the discussion was, at what age is it right to show the documentary Earthlings to a child? This is what the uh, the person put in the post was asking. Now, obviously, there were varied responses, and we want to ask this question, but in a in a broader sense, don't we, Rich? It's not we don't want to talk about Earthlings specifically. No, more broadly. So the question we wanted to start off the discussion with in the second half of this episode is: Should children be shown how animals are killed? I, I do not think that children should be shown how animals are killed. I don't think it's necessary. And more than that, I think if children are shown from a young age that that's how animals are killed, they will become desensitised to that and used to it. And I think that's far more problematic than, than possibly being shocked or upset. And being shocked or upset you know, is neither here, it, 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 it's less important to me anyway. And the plus the fact what that then does is get the welfareism argument. So potentially all these shop children will um, ensure that animals are killed more humanely if there can be such a thing, rather than actually understanding the, the moral imperative that animals should not be used, abused or um, eaten. So, yeah, I'm absolutely against children being shown it. And actually, for one reason, I happen to be on a homesteading Facebook page and there people will happily show pictures of their children butchering animals. You know, those yeah. kids have been brought up doing that. So I don't think that it's going to have that shock and horror and children going off and buying a veggie burger you know, because they've seen it. That's just not the way humans work, unfortunately. Thank you, Kirsch. Uh, Tom, can we can we come to you now? What, what are your initial thoughts on this? I think first and foremost, it's really important to remember that when we talk about children, that's a very broad range. Children legally are defined as anyone under the age of 18. Um, and it's very difficult to imagine how anyone under that age, depending on whether they're under five, under 10, under 15, could react to seeing um, explicit content now children of course are 
um, protected from seeing explicit content um, through the content they consume, be that films, video games, television. And that's for a good reason, because children don't have the maturity um, or the ability to process that explicit content in what you might deem a healthy way. And that's when we, as you say, that's when we talk about fictitious content, pretend. Now we're suddenly bringing in this idea of showing them the horrific things people do to animals. So my initial response to that question, similar to Kirch, is is no, children don't need to be shown that. I think most children are very empathetic by nature, especially young children. They understand that animals feel pain. They understand that animals feel emotions. And they can empathize with a lot of that. Like if you say, the animal feels sad, the animal hurts, the animal misses their baby, the baby misses their mummy. These are emotions that children can relate to, especially younger children. And I do think that just having those conversations with young children, especially, can be very powerful. And it also depends on who you're talking to. You're talking to vegan children or you're talking to non-vegan children, a mix. Mm. So again, there's a, there's a, a really wide context. I do think children need to know where their food comes from. I do think children need to be told what happens to animals. I don't think children should be shown that, especially under a certain age. Go on, name the age, Tom. It's a really tough one to see. I mean, we're talking about some really graphic content here. If we're talking about seeing the conditions animals are kept in, we, you, could, you could show that to a child at the age of 10. You could show them pigs being confined to really small spaces, battery hens. You can show them that because it's, it's horrible, but there's no death. The older the children, maybe 16, maybe that's when... If it, again, it has to be the child's choice because you shouldn't be. If you were a parent and you went right, child, let's uh, let's watch this really horrible horror film, you'd be rightfully, you know, put to the slaughter, as it were. Excuse the pun, yeah. but you know, you'd be criticised for that, and you'd be the same as if you went to your child. Right, let's watch Dominion. Let's watch Land of Hope and Glory. I just, I think the ch- children don't have the maturity to process that information. They don't have the maturity and the ability to process what they are seeing in a healthy way and again i just link it back a conversation an open and frank conversation will help them understand because i i I understand uh, the flip side of the argument oh we shouldn't shy away from how animals are treated and I, i i get that but if you if you've got a child in year six 10 and 11 studying world war ii you're going to show them the first 10 minutes of saving private ryan you, you got children studying World War One. You're gonna you're gonna show them, um, you know, all quiet on the Western Front. You're gonna show them. You're gonna take them to Auschwitz so they can understand the Holocaust. You're gonna you know, watch make them watch Roots to understand slavery. It, you don't need those things. I, I don't think you do. I just think children are children can, you know, receive the information. Animals feel pain. They are feel suffering, and they are treated horrifically by people by the industry that wants to call them food. They understand that and they can understand the injustice of that without having to show them this really horrific content. Thank you. Rich, can can you give us your initial thoughts on this? And then I've, I've got some questions I'd like to ask based on what, what we've heard so far. Uh, I don't think graphical images should be shown to kids. And I don't think it's a good idea to normalize cruelty and violence from a very young age, because I don't think it's helping them understand that that's not a good thing to do, but it's just normalizing a bad behavior. So, and the same would go for fishing. You know, if you go fishing with your kids, what you're doing is normalizing violence and just showing them that that's normal. 
So, no, and I don't think from a very young age you're prepared to cope with these things. You might be causing more harm than, you know, anything else. So, no, we... I don't think it's a good idea and I don't think it's a good idea either to engage them in any sort of animal discrimination or animal dominance or anything that can lead to the normalization of violence. Thank you. Right. So I'd like to make a statement that I think we're all making certain assumptions that we're talking about younger children. It felt like that's what the the general theme was. I'm going to flip it now and say that, like you said, Tom, um, someone who's 15 is is technically a child, is legally a child. And there's a 15 year old who wants to look at this. Does that change anyone's opinion? Yeah, actually, I was just thinking, you know, I went vegetarian when I was eight, vegan when I was 16. And I certainly had seen some very graphical uh, vivisection um, imagery during that time that I sought out. And I was probably in, I probably was about 12, 11, 12, that sort of age. Um, But I sought that out. So, yes, I think there is a difference there. If I'm looking at something or looking at a leaflet or something like that, or I want to find out more about it, then yes, I think that's acceptable. But there's a real danger in showing that shock horror image to a child who isn't, you know, without that context, I guess. Do we think this is about consent? Because it seems like that's that's the biggest difference here. I think so. I think, um, which is very ironic considering the topic we're talking about, because of mm. course, animals consent and or the lack thereof in this case. But I just, I think if it's, if you're, if you want to watch that content, if you, as you've said, Kirch, if you're looking for that content at the age of 15, 16, that's very different to an adult sitting you down and saying, watch this. If my child came to me at the age of 15, 16 and said, I want to know why we're actually vegan, dad, tell me, uh, show me what, 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 what is this all about? I would do the talk again. I would say, well, I can show you. This is what you're probably going to see, and it's probably going to make you feel really upset. Are you sure you want to do this? So I would still say there are steps before getting to showing of graphical image that I would take as a parent before I showed them any graphic content. Do we know what age children are allowed to work in slaughterhouses? Are they allowed to work there at 16? They probably are, aren't they? I'm pretty sure they are. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I know in the catering Google. industry, you're only allowed to use a knife when you're 18, I think. I think there is a law. I think, yeah, you have, you can be 16 to buy a knife from a shop, which is uh, very strange. So, yeah, I reckon about the age of 16, but happy to be proven wrong, Ant. Hi, this is Ant in the editing studio. I can confirm that in the UK, at least, you need to be at least 18 years of age to work in a slaughterhouse. Well, all I was going to say was, if we're saying consent is one thing, but then in five years' time, Tom's son says, show me, and he's, what, seven years old, it's not just about consent, is it? Because, well, sorry, Tom, I'm putting words in your mouth. What would you do if that's if that happens? Then your seven-year-old child says, "Can can you show me what happens on a farm?" Um, I, I would be inclined to again not show anything too horrific. Um, again, I would probably link it back to, "Well, this is what the this is the sort of pens that poor pigs are kept in. You know, these are the sorts of cages that hens are kept in." And I'd probably keep it something similar to that. I, I definitely would hundred would one hundred percent not share any any slaughter, any, you know, animal cruelty beyond, as I say, the conditions. I think it's important to 
to stop the romanticizing of farms because as a teacher i can tell you that farms are very romanticized we know that's not the case so it's it's a really tough question and i, I for a 7 year old i still think explicit content is a is a, is a definite no go it's just irrelevant the conditions that animals are kept in and the conditions that they're killed in is irrelevant you know so i i don't think having brought up kids I don't think at any point I felt that that was something I needed to show them. I needed to explain to them. You know, I didn't need to show them pictures of other kids who've got a black eye to explain to them they're not allowed to hit other children. You don't need to do that, do you? So I I just think it's irrelevant. But, you know, sometimes we've done sort of, um, you know, had vegan food days and we've shown videos and we take people into a little booth and they watch a little vid- you know, a little video and we don't let children go in there. But, you know, perhaps some children would like to go in there and, it, and it's, you know, it's a bit difficult, isn't it, really? I guess it is difficult because you wouldn't have been able to stop me going in there when I was a child. <laughs> I, I think as well, like my experience of working with children is is that sort of 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds often like to push the envelope a bit and want to play games that are 18 rated and want to watch films that are 15s and 18s. But in a way, that almost becomes something that as I think generally in society, we turn a blind eye to that because it's fictional. So if it's a fictional if it's a fictional game, if someone's playing Grand Theft Auto, yes, of course, horrid stuff like that happens in real life. But I think a lot of parents would be fine with a, uh, let's say, a 12-year-old playing an 18-rated game compared <laughs> to looking at explicit footage of, uh, I don't know, a human rights violation that is actually going on in real life, that there seems to be this kind of like cosseting of like, well, we're not going to show you what's really happening, but you can look at a pretend version of something that might happen. I, I don't know. It seems a bit paradoxical. Well, what, what's also paradoxical is at what age do you buy them a fake gun so they can play or a fake whatever that causes violence, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Rich, some people would say that the state of emergency that animals are in requires drastic action and they could you they might use that as a reason to say i understand what we're saying about risking upsetting children about it maybe be upsetting to look at but actually animals are suffering now and they're in a state of emergency and we need to not wrap people in in cotton wool we need to show what's what's happening is that a valid argument don't think so no i mean Showing graphical image, how many people does that change? You can go to any city and you'll see, you know, the the cube, the the guys that I admire a lot that have the laptops showing graphical image. How many people stop? You you can't force someone to see footage and against their will. I think there's much better ways to inform mm. kids rather than showing images. It's all about talking, about answering the 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 natural curiosity that probably they will have not about saying by the way this is what happens i think you also put your cause at risk because being a vegan parent is already hard enough and then if you add into that accusations of forcing your child to watch graphic content it just um it just becomes an even harder thing to do and there's already a huge spotlight on quote-unquote tofu eating woe karate as it is, you know, with um, animal rights um, marches and, you know, environmental protests being the favourite, you know, 
punch bag of you know right wing leaning press and i think this would just do even more damage than it it tried to do good if that makes sense can i ask a question just but between us here i think a lot of what we're saying in terms of reasons for not sharing graphic footage with with children does the same not apply to adults because i i i I just feel like there are a lot of adults who are a lot more sensitive than a lot than a lot of the children that i know and and so does it not make us need to think carefully about that i i find i do not think the graphic imagery is at all necessary in fact i actually have to ask some friends on facebook to just like block me from some of it i don't think i think all it does is that welfare piece that we've talked about already it just says we need to change the conditions these animals die in and that is not what we're looking to do is it you know everybody knows where the sausage comes from, where the bacon comes from. It's up to us to explain in a caring and kind way to people to make that connection. And I don't believe, I think it would be interesting to see statistically how many people are really changed by watching those graphic, those graphic things. I think we, we, we change, when we've done free vegan food days, I think we change a damn sight more with a nice vegan cake and a, a bit of vegan cheese. <laughs> Than we do, <laughs> than we do when we show the shock or oh, the gory, the gory stuff. Can I just seek clarification, Kirsch? Because you you have said as a child you sought these things out yourself. Could you just clarify the role that you feel it played for you? Because I'm hearing what you're saying just now, but that also was... did it play a role for you? So particularly with vivisection. I mean, so I'm talking about the the appalling things that animals, and especially that was sort of in the 1980s, when it was really important that we stop vivisection. So yes, it was really clear. And I did need to see some of those horrific images, I I believe. But it didn't in any way have any, it it didn't make me become vegetarian watching any uh, terrible images and it didn't make me become vegan the only thing that became vegan is actually making that connection i hadn't understood beforehand i was only 16 cool thanks thanks for clarifying that tom um just really quickly it just uh, it just reminds me of um my mum um always tells me that when she was a, a child she went on a school trip to an abattoir and she Jeez. always talks yeah and she always talks about it as one of the most traumatic experiences of her life she still eats meat so, and of course, that's a very small sample size, but it just goes back to what Kirch is saying here that showing graphic images isn't the way. It's all about making that connection to animals. And I think children have that in abundance. And I think it, eventually, it gets taught out of them as they get older to care less for animals or only care for certain animals that look nice when you put them in your house. But I genuinely think that having worked with children, you know, as young as four, you can see that natural curiosity and love and empathy for animals that they have. And it, over time, it just gets taught out of them. Um, so it's it's really imperative that they you don't let them lose that connection, um, you know, with the wonderful animals that we share our planet with. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Richard? No, I was going to say, relating to the question, I think... If we analyze the question, there's something wrong about it because it should be like, shouldn't we consider that if we are asking the question of showing explicit image, we should question the behaviors that can be shown to kids and reflect on whether it's wrong to have the behavior in the first place rather than saying, 
at what age it's, it's okay to show this this these footages but we need to question the behavior if something is wrong probably that's why we don't want to show it to our kids so instead of pushing really hard to show this sort of stuff to young children we're instead pushing the message saying you know what there's some stuff that goes on that's so horrible that people don't even like to look at it and 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 that's what it is is that kind of what you're saying yes it's we should be questioning as adults, you know, regardless of if you have kids or not, when we say things can't be shown, we should be making, you know, the reflection of saying, why can't it be shown? Could it be uh, wrong in the first place? Can I change that behavior? But we seem sometimes not to connect that. Because for the example about fishing, for example, maybe you're showing a two, three-year-old to fish. They see the fish, they cry, you know, because there's something natural in them that understands that that's not right. So yeah, absolutely. But does that make it should make you question the behavior? Is it wrong to do this on the first place? So I think graphical images shown to kids, the 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 story behind it should be why doesn't that make people think about what if something is not suitable to show to kids? Maybe that behavior is wrong on the first place. I, I think the key point there, Rich, is like the, it's the questioning. Well, why aren't we showing it? Because I I don't like it often when 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 vegans will say, well, if you're not even willing to look at how it how it happens, then then what does that say? Because actually, how how many of us walk into mortuaries and look at dead bodies? Like it's not a nice thing to do. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the embalming process or or how we bury people. It's just not something that we tend to do it's not necessarily that people are doing anything unethical in a funeral directors so however what does happen in animal agriculture like the reason we're not looking at that is is a different reason and perhaps it is because there's something morally wrong with it so it's actually questioning well why do we not look at that why do we not look at that why do we feel okay looking at this that that would be my take on it i think you know that idea if if uh, abattoirs had glass walls, everybody would be vegan. I I just don't agree with that. I think everyone would be completely desensitised to it and would walk past it. When I went to London for the first time after decades, I was really upset by the amount of homeless people on the street. Three or four times afterwards, I was actually stepping over people because I'd got used to it. And I consider myself an extremely compassionate person and I was able to desensitise myself about it so it's it's good that it's behind walls because then we get to talk to people about it we use our compassion our care and we can explain to them you know I agree it is an emergency but I honestly don't think that having big billboards all around the place and constant graphic images is going to do anything to bring people over to the right Mm. way of being I'm going to out myself here I've never watched Dominion or Earthlings because I don't feel like I need to I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for five years now, um, which I know isn't particularly long in the grand scheme of things, but I just feel like it'd be preaching to the converted. You know, I just, um, as we, as you already said, I know it's morally reprehensible. I don't need to be shown it. I'm sure there'd be lots of very angry. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) I'm a bad vegan. You can revoke my membership. (laughs) Yeah, you're not, you can't call yourself a vegan unless you've uh, stared at a laptop screen for three hours solid okay well let's leave things there shall we so a question to all of you listening right now 
what do you think? Is there an ideal age to share graphic footage like Earthlings or Dominion? Or do people even need to watch these sort of things? We'd absolutely love to hear your voices too on this podcast. Enough of the falafel at gmail.com is the place to send your thoughts, questions, comments and concerns regarding any of the news stories or anything we've covered in this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Six episodes down. Goodness me, we ought to know how to do this by now. This is this is high pressure being applied to us all. Thank you, Tom, for joining us this week. Thank you, Kirsch, for joining us this week. And indeed, thank you for everyone listening for the first or indeed the sixth time. If you want to do a good deed that makes us happy, you can share the podcast with your friend, co-worker, next-door neighbour, or long estranged aunt or uncle. It's up to you. You can also review us too okay, on Spotify okay, or Apple. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, that's enough of the falafel for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening. I've been Richard. He's been Tom. She's been Perch. And I've been Anthony. And this has been episode six of Vegan Week. Mm-hmm.